Welcome to the third season of Courage Incorporated, produced by the Walrus Lab. Join me as we hear the courageous and powerful voices of leaders from across Canada. They have the incredible task of directing the future of Canada and the courage of the nation. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. Dr. Kevin Smith, our guest today, has spent his career at the interface of the university and the academic hospital and is passionately committed to the mission of education, research, and exemplary clinical care. He became president and CEO of the University Health Network in 2018, a role which includes Toronto General, Toronto Western Hospital, and the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, and the Michener Institute of Education. Previously, he served as President and Chief Executive Officer of St. Joseph's Health System in Hamilton and Chief Executive Officer of the Niagara Health System. Dr. Smith is well known for his contribution to the healthcare system, provincially and nationally. He currently serves as Chair, Council of Academic Hospitals of Ontario, and is privileged to serve in many past roles, including Chair of the Canadian Foundation for Innovation, the Ontario Hospital Association, and as a frequent advisor to governments and the private sector. Dr. Smith is a professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University and holds a Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Sussex in England. He is professionally certified in corporate governance by the Institute of Corporate Directors and the Harvard Program in Effective Governance. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kevin Smith to our podcast today. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here on Courage Incorporated. And perhaps we could start, Kevin, by having you tell us a bit about your own courageous journey from a small town in Ontario to your current leadership role, where you're responsible for much of the province's health care. Uh, I grew up in a little town, very small town in eastern Ontario uh, on the St. Lawrence River called Prescott. About 5,000 people at the time, considerably smaller now. I was the third of three, the baby, the only boy. And my sisters, uh, elder sisters, and the most remarkable parents who, who unquestionably to this day are my heroes. Um, I uh, first went to school in the United States in Pennsylvania for a couple of years and then made my way to McMaster. Um, at McMaster, I got introduced to problem-based, self-directed uh, medical education. It was the revolution, really, in medical training. And at my many years at McMaster were predicated by the most remarkable mentors. And at the time, I'm not sure I realized that. I was too young to probably appreciate uh, that they were really the giants of medicine at the time. People like John Evans, who was the founding dean, he, he had left by the time I got there, but Fraser Mustard was still there. And John Bienenstock, who was one of my, my early mentors, and really so many people, David Sackett, uh, just remarkable names that I was too young to realize how fortunate I was. But from there and at, at their behest, I got kind of sent to England, did some training in the United Kingdom, came back to Mac, did some more work at McMaster, did a couple of visiting professor uh, stints in England uh, at the Wellcome Trust at Oxford and, uh, and laterally um, uh, some work with the Science Policy Research Unit. So really and truly, when I look at my journey, it has been distinguished by the most generous and remarkable mentors, be it in the hospital journey, the academic journey, uh, personal growth. Many of our, our philanthropic donors learn so much from. So I've just been really one of the most fortunate people. I often say uh, my, my good fortune is more due to luck uh, than, than to planning or, or brains, but uh, I'm, I am so fortunate to be where I am today and really 
a dream really to to have this position at UHN and uh, be able to, uh, in some small way, influence how science, medicine, and the health of Canadians can be affected. You've talked about a few of your mentors along the way. What was it about them that really inspired you to want to continue to pursue this journey, first of medical education and then a, a broader leadership role in the health system? You know, it's such a great question. And many young people who are kind of looking for a bit of mentorship ask me that and tell me about their five-year plan. And I, I think I disappoint them because I've never had a five-year plan or an any-year plan. Uh, I've always, and I think this really was influenced by my McMaster experience, I found doing interesting things with remarkable people who you can learn something from and who you personally like and, and relate to their value system uh, that had an impact in an area of intellectual interest was really where I, I went. And uh, there's, I can't think of a discipline more um, open to that kind of, of opportunity and, and remarkable experience than healthcare. But I honestly never really said this is the destination. I, I wouldn't have known, honestly, that hospitals had presidents in those days. I don't really think I ever thought about how they worked. And frankly, I thought I'd spend my entire career in the university because I, I loved it so much. And along came a dean, John Bienenstock, who said, you know, we, we need you to do some work in the ho teaching hospitals and help us embed the curriculum more and improve the educational environment and raise the bar on research. And again, walked through that door and it led to, uh, to this remarkable opportunity. It's like it's always been a life of never being comfortable in the status quo, but always sort of challenging the what else, what's next, you know, what more. For sure. I mean, I, I remember a, a great mentor uh, once writing this in a report, and I've never forgotten it, to pauses to regress and, and to fall behind. And uh, I think that's true. And uh, for me, it is always interesting to learn new things in every discipline. Uh, and most of them actually have a, have a relationship back to healthcare. I think one of the great things about my uh, learning experience has been how much we can generalize between disciplines. I think in the old days, medicine was a pretty stodgy discipline that said, for it to be applicable to medicine, it has to be studied and invented in medicine. And I think the Eureka was saying, there are many disciplines that we can and should borrow from that will only make healthcare better. It sounds like that was, was part of your experience at McMaster of always respectfully questioning, not making it personal, but challenging the idea, debating with passion, but respecting each other as colleagues in terms of how you built that kind of collaborative approach. You know, if I had one grave concern of late, I, I think what I see is a bit of loss of that civility, respect and dignity in debate that we can and should vehemently debate ideas. Uh, the, those kind of golden days of McMaster, the rubric was don't ever accept the status quo, right? It is, it is uh, unacceptable to believe that there is a destination. It is always the journey. It's never over be skeptical, uh, ask questions, challenge data, um, all in a respectful discourse, all in a very kind of scholarly way, not without passion, but, but it wasn't personal. And, uh, you know, much of the good fun of those days was really imbued by, yeah, but what if, what if that isn't right? What if there's a better way? What if we could do this differently? And um, I think the other piece of it was a, a recognition 
that the creation of knowledge was moving at such a fast pace, none of us could ever be fully equipped with knowledge, that we had to have a learn how to learn, learn how to get information. And particularly in these last few years of COVID, I'm so grateful that the the focus of those days was on critically appraising information. And is it generalizable or is it in fact flawed in that we're taking uh, small amounts of information, extending it across large problems and coming up with the wrong conclusions? But again, do it in that respectful manner that isn't a personal attack, but an, an attack on ideas. We'll see the pendulum swing much more back to the middle. I think that's where Canadians naturally go, but uh, the trend is concerning. Kevin, I would agree with you. I think it is a very noble profession. And I think it's one that we've seen a lot of examples through the pandemic of great stories of personal courage and, and effort on the part of so many people in the healthcare system to work together through the pandemic. And, and the reality is, is that that has led to, as, as you know better than any of us, the real challenges now of capacity in the system you know, the lived experience of people in the system and how they're supported, new ideas about how to free up hospital beds, new legislative solutions like Bill 7 in Ontario being suggested. And as a real leader in the system, can you talk to us about how you collaborate and work together with the province and, and other healthcare organizations to try to find these new solutions, not accepting the status quo and some of these real issues we're facing? But I think it's uh, it's the... $64 billion question at the moment, and uh, it is a more challenging question than ever. Duncan, as you know, we can't get on an airplane and fly to the perfect healthcare system anywhere in the world. Uh, they all have strengths and sadly some weaknesses. And I think the holy trinity of healthcare, as most of us look at it, is somehow trying to align quality, access, and affordability or cost. And that's where I think many of us are, are focused at the moment. How do we address access particularly uh, as we look at shortages? How do we ensure that the quality we're offering is of an equal high standard no matter where one receives it? And uh, how does one ensure that we do this in an affordable mechanism, particularly in a universal system, so more and more people can have rapid access to care? Uh, I have yet to meet a public servant, an elected official, or a member of the public service who are not equally committed to a better healthcare system because they're all also um, patients at the end of the day. So I think all come to public service with a commitment to this. It's an incredibly complicated field where, unfortunately, we are a bit rooted historically, and particularly in models of, of incentive or remuneration that may no longer fit the outcomes we're trying to achieve. Uh, increasingly, I think we're, we're discovering that looking at fee-for-service as the predominant model, so do more, make more, may not actually be ideal for all areas of healthcare. And uh, for an example, while it may be a very good model from an efficiency perspective in a high-throughput, low-acuity surgical environment, if one's dealing with a complex, frail elder with many comorbidities, simply incenting speed is probably not the right outcome. So I, I think for the future to be as bright as we hope it will be, we actually have to pause and begin talking about what are those foundational issues that we know will be required and how can we appropriately incent them? Equally, how can we give Canadians and their healthcare providers better data to evaluate how well am I doing? 
As an example, I'll, I'll pick on diabetes, a very common disease. I hope that in the future, all diabetics appreciate that they should get a blood test known as, known as a hemoglobin A1C, eye care and foot care annually. And if they don't get that, if the standard of care isn't being met for all diabetics, where should they turn and how can they get it? And equally, I hope that those of us in the provision side would get data to say, hey, Kevin, you're firing at about 40%. Only 40% of your diabetics appear to be getting that. And Duncan is serving 98 or 99%. What do I need to learn from Duncan? And to be very frank, Duncan, do we need to make some of those incentives more allied with the performance we expect? And for me, the future of healthcare, like all performance improvement initiatives, is we're trying to narrow the standard deviation and shift the mean uh, to improve the mean with decreasing variability while, while also recognizing there will and should be some. But increasingly, I think it is really saying this is the standard which we expect for Canadian patients. We're going to make that transparent. We're no longer going to be afraid of telling a patient what they should expect in their care journey prospectively because patients are great quality assurance ambassadors. If I tell you on day three post-operative, this should happen, and it doesn't. I can't think of anyone better than you or your family to let me know that I didn't deliver on what I promised to. And it may be as simple as you're doing so well, we don't need to do that. But if that's true, then I miss the mark a little on communicating that. But I really see the future about the engagement of patient and provider and, of course, the transparency of what excellence looks like and we can expect aligned with an incentive system that truly rewards people, not only economically, but in many ways, from a quality of work-life perspective, from a, for those of us in academic settings, from an academic promotion perspective or access to research funding, we want to align the very best and brightest to be given the resources that are required to drag all of us to the highest level. So I actually think that if we sit down with government and begin thinking about the KPIs that are important to all, and they don't all have to be quantitative, many will be qualitative, that there is so much more that unites us than divides us. Well, and Kevin, that raises an interesting question also about the use of technology, because that's a whole other area that I think we're seeing within the health system, people trying to say, are there ways that I can use different technologies to help uh, determine the level of care and who can provide care to your whole point about how do you relieve congestion in the system? And, and I will share with you that one of the most fascinating new technologies I saw recently was actually a new toilet that was, you know, displayed in the United States at one of these sort of innovation conferences where, you know, through the use of this, you were actually capturing real-time medical information about the people using this to say, is there evidence of, am I seeing markers of, is there any cause to see concern, and so on. And so the notion of how citizens in their own homes with evolving technologies can almost become a piece of the frontline assessment of do I have a need for something or not. I just, for me, it's a really interesting question of how technology will continue to evolve in support of some of the issues you've raised. And I'm, I'd be interested in your thoughts of how UHN is thinking about technology and integrating or scaling that into the different areas that you're trying to provide patient care for. Yeah, you're, you're dead on. I, I think the future is about digital health and, you know, your listeners should put up their hand if they say, I'd really love to end my life or spend a significant portion of my life in institutional care rather than at home. 
And I'd wager to say that is no one's willed future. We all wish to spend as many healthy, productive years as possible in our home. And uh, I think digital health will actually let us do much of that, exactly as you've said around monitoring, but also around early identification of disease. And there are so many promising technologies out there, many invented right here in Canada. At UHN, I'll just pick on one, but there's a plethora. Um, Dr. Heather Ross, who's the head of our division of cardiology, is an example. And Dr. Joe Cafazzo have developed a product called Medley. And Heather is a, a world-leading expert in heart failure. And in heart failure, you tend to retain fluid, particularly around the heart, and it makes your heart less efficient. So one of the most important markers to indicate, indicate an exacerbation of heart failure is weight change. And these are often you know, quite frail people with a number of other illnesses as well. And so Heather is able to daily have patients step on a downloadable weigh scale, put on a downloadable blood pressure cuff, and immediately change the um, regimen of their drugs so that they use diuretics to take any additional fluid off the heart. And as soon as one does that, the likelihood of exacerbation dramatically decreases. With every exacerbation, your heart muscle doesn't quite, quite bounce back fully. So the more we can eliminate exacerbations of heart failure, the, the better the patient remains and the better their quality of life remains. One simple tool, it is now trending because of the size of the data pool to artificial intelligence and looking at beyond weight, weight change, what are the other markers, not unlike the, the example you gave in the United States, that data would point us in a direction of early intervention, early change, and preventing uh, an acute illness, which would require a hospital presentation. That's true also in stroke and other heart disease. It's true also in areas of depression and mental health disorders. It's true in many, many, many diseases where if we can intervene early and avoid an emergency presentation, convert it if necessary to a schedule presentation, or even better, avoid any presentation at all because of a change in prevention or medication management, then we dramatically improve an already stressed system. The other end of the spectrum, Duncan, another really great project we've undertaken is, you know, since 1970, we've been talking about the health of the population. Mark Lalonde, I think, was the first health minister of Canada to really push this endeavor. And uh, in the last three or four years, University Health Network has uh, created a division of social medicine, which really is looking at those most marginalized populations, often homeless or underhoused, frequently with food insecurity, often affected by poverty, often comorbid presentation with mental health. We have about 215 people who use over uh, 15,000 emergency room visits in a year. And, you know, when one thinks about that, that is more than a visit a week. They're not there because they are, are, are medically ill. They're there because it's the only available environment for them 24-7, and they come to actually know the providers there. So in this model, we're creating our Canada's first 50 unit, hopefully growing to 500 units, of prescribable housing. So the clinicians can actually say, I am prescribing you housing. Within that housing and with their consent, we will create the most wired environments possible to monitor your heart, to monitor your resp respiration, to monitor and have you report how your mood and, and uh, depression is. And again, really look at 
how can we affect those who are often the highest consumers of healthcare and historically may not have had a very good uh, social experience in terms of being accepted by the healthcare system. Well, Kevin, you, you raised some really important points about what I would say is sort of the intersection of, of innovation and research, which I know UHN invests in seven different research institutes within the system, focusing on different critical areas and technology, with the whole issue of sort of health equity. And I think that, again, was something through the pandemic that we saw different equity-seeking groups having a very different experience through the pandemic. And, you know, some of that sort of historic, some of that perhaps current around how they were receiving care. And I'd be really interested in your thoughts about the UHN commitment to health equity and efforts to address some of the real societal needs around making healthcare accessible and supportable of all citizens in different parts of our region. Yeah, Duncan, I think it's one of the key components of really addressing the underlying challenges of a universally funded and accessible system. Despite having both, uh, we still see equity-deserving groups not consuming healthcare at the same rate. And so two things. One, uh, we created the um, social medicine program and have identified a chief of population health, my colleague, Dr. Andrew Buzari, and very much focused on listening to those consumers whose experience with the healthcare system has not always generated trust, or nor have they always felt welcome. Uh, in addition to that, our Indigenous Council, led by Dr. Michael Anderson uh, and his colleagues, have been a remarkable and important initiative where we've all learned that nothing about us without us is an incredibly important uh, initiative where Indigenous people particularly their experience with the healthcare system historically has often been through uh, undeclared experimentation. So uh, three things I think that I'm, I'm very proud of that UHN has embraced. One, uh, a culture of reconciliation. Uh, two, structures to actively seek out and better understand what we're doing in terms of our shortcomings in engaging, building trust and correcting historical inequities. And thirdly, being very uh, purposeful in looking at Team UHN and ensuring that opportunities for advancement, opportunities for the team who provides healthcare to look like the team who receives healthcare or the individuals who receive healthcare. And again, our people and culture colleagues have recently undertaken an ideas survey that for the first time in our history asks those uh, individuals who identify in underrepresented groups to talk about their experience at UHN, to talk about that as both as a patient, if they are one, but also as a member of Team UHN. What could we, should we, and, and must we do to make it a more inclusive environment? And what's resistance? Um, what, why are people oftentimes resistant to seeking service in hospital or institutional-like settings? What other options can we offer thanks to the support of philanthropists like Emmanuel Gattuso at La Fondation Emmanuel Gattuso and TELUS Foundation, we've put together a, a bus, a health bus, that actually goes out to underrepresented neighborhoods and often disadvantaged neighborhoods, tried to ensure that more and more of the providers uh, in those environments look like the people we're serving and build trust with those individuals. During COVID was a perfect time, we saw over and over, where when, when uh, you know, often white, uh, male would go out and try to persuade people to take a vaccine, very ineffective. When someone, in the case of the South Asian community or the Black community, 
had a, a person of color, BIPOC person, go out and talk to them about why were they excited about taking the vaccine? Why was it the right thing to do? Why culturally could they be uh, unafraid? Tremendously important. And I think when we look at the cancer burden, when we look at the challenge of issues of aging and dementia, we have so much opportunity to ensure that culturally sensitive healthcare is part of Canada's future and, and UHN wants to, wants to and will lead the way. And Kevin, you, you mentioned in there the importance of philanthropy and you spoke earlier about it one time working with the Welcome Trust, which is you know, perhaps a, a great example of a, of a gift given you know, almost a century ago and how it's grown into a, a major funder of really world-class you know, clinical research that benefits so many thousands of people. As you think about the importance of philanthropy going forward in Canada, what do you think needs to happen within you know, the, the health system, the, the broader philanthropic community to really help to target and look at the areas where philanthropic support can really make a difference? You know, we truly would not be anywhere near the top of the pile if it wasn't for philanthropy, specifically at UHN. And, and Duncan, thank you for all, all you personally do and have done in that regard. Um, we have been recently ranked and, you know, we're, we, we take these things with both pride and, and modesty. Uh, we know the strengths and weaknesses of top 10 lists, but we're pretty happy to repeatedly uh, end up in the top five hospitals in the world list. And we take that very, very seriously. Uh, and we also worry about not staying on the top five in the hospitals of the world list. But we know we would not be there if it wasn't for investments through philanthropy, which increasingly, uh, I, I am clearly saying, are not gifts. Donors are expecting return on investment. They are talking about investments, uh, rightly so, as are we. And our culture has to be one increasingly if we wish to grow investment through philanthropic uh, allyship to demonstrate that we are getting the results that this investment bears. We're spreading those results so that, it, of course, it helps the patients we treat. But as a world-leading academic health science center, the expectation is to create innovation, spread that innovation, change practice patterns, see results for patients, improve the quality of work life for stress providers. And then, of course, in many of those cases, uh, philanthropy also leads to new revenue streams through commercialization. And, uh, you know, five to seven years ago, UHN became very focused on becoming a more commercializable center. And again, wouldn't have happened without our foundations, uh, have now identified some investment funds that allow us to seed and fund and support those innovations likely to make a commercial enterprise. In the last year or two, we've seen about $4 billion of capitalization come to ideas and science generated at, uh, at UHN and, you know, 30 to 40 to $50 million coming back into the research enterprise out of revenue generated by UHN's intellectual property. And I know that will only grow. And to be very frank, Canada is not at the top of the heap for research funding. So it is with philanthropy that we are able to compete best. And it's philanthropy and research are why Canadians actually get access to the latest care. It takes a long time in a universal system from the idea of a best practice or a best technology or a best new drug for it to go through testing and approval and then being approved for, the, for funding by each of the provinces. 
it's research and philanthropy that often introduces those early on to Canadians so that they don't have to go abroad, so that they can get cutting-edge ideas here, and that the ideas of Canadian scientists aren't being commercialized offshore and Canadians being deprived of that benefit. So it really is that ever never-ending uh, circle of innovation that uh, philanthropy stimulates. Beyond that, of course, I, and I can't stress this one strongly enough, it's also in the quality of work life for very stressed providers. So philanthropy during COVID, as an example, we had very frightened uh, staff members, especially early in this disease, with kids with chronic disease or parents living with them with chronic disease, they were afraid to go home. And generous philanthropists said, we're going to provide you some alternate housing. We're going to provide you some hotel rooms. We're going to provide you some food relief. And, you know, these were unbelievably helpful in keeping people at work to care for very sick people at a time when we really didn't know the, the future of, of this disease and how negatively it could affect healthcare workers. So be it from just keeping people in the workplace right through to commercializing ideas that will literally change the face of how we treat disease. Philanthropy is at the bedrock of all that we're going to do in the future. Well, Kevin, thank you again for this wonderful conversation. And, and as you think about all that we've talked to and all of the things that you've experienced and the role that you've had, if you sort of step beyond UHN and said, you know, in my career, my real aspiration for healthcare in Canada would be, what would your answer to that be? My real uh, aspiration, particularly now, is for Canadians to receive the highest quality and best outcome health care and matched equally by health caring, because it, it is often very actually difficult to determine how high quality was your medical intervention. It wasn't difficult at all to determine how well cared for did I feel during that journey. And the second piece, my, my hope would be to equally, this other side of the same coin, create a true high quality work life for health providers and those who support them so that it continues to be a job and a destination, actually a, a, more a calling than just a job. And that the people in the disciplines are there because they are really called to a vocation of caring, of inquiry, of, of sharing information and of uh, true public service. And uh, I think we have so much of the bedrock there, but it is a bit shaky at the moment. People are feeling fragile. Uh, funding is precarious. We know new technologies coming down the road that we're not quite clear on how yet to fund it. And I think the more Canadians that make clear to our elected officials and public policymakers that we expect nothing less than the very best care in the world for Canadians, the better off we'll all be. Well, Kevin, on behalf of all of us who have been cared for by the people of UHN at some time in our lives, thank you so much for your leadership, the leadership of all the people that are there and all that care for us and help us to have a safe and healthy civil society you know, in our nation's largest center. So again, thanks to you and your team. Thank you for being part of this interview today. Thank you, Duncan. It's a privilege for us to serve patients and it's a privilege to be with you and talk about the remarkable place that is UHN today. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today and the wonderful insights that you've shared with all of us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Courage Incorporated. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. This podcast is a production of the Walrus Lab. Thanks to our brilliant producer, Camille Hemming, 
and our team here at Deloitte. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and tune in again soon to meet our next courageous leader.